Well, church, we are beginning a book study this morning on 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter to the church that spread abroad throughout Asia Minor and the world. He refers to them as elect exiles. He's preparing the church for a coming time of persecution. Now, it's a soft persecution, I think, right now, where people disdain you and malign you and cast you aside. It's not the Diocletian murder them, crucify them, uh, uh, terror. It, but it is, it is, it is what, what many of you are facing. So I think that's why First Peter is such an appropriate book to study. So please hear First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So it starts off, Peter says, I'm an apostle. So an, an apostle here, as defined by Scripture, is someone who's directly commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. He is someone who is a person who writes, and what he writes is inherently true, the Scriptures. He is someone who is a worker of miracles, who does miracles, and, and, and he's someone who preaches the gospel. So, so the gift of apostleship is closed after the, the Scriptures here, because the resurrected Jesus doesn't call us. He calls us by the internal work of the Spirit, but there's no visible manifestation of Jesus. And the, what you write in early come true, workers of miracles, eh, it's not, not really true um, as far as being an apostle. So while God does miraculous, it, we think the gift of apostleship is, 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 is closed. So Peter says, I'm an apostle. I saw the resurrected Jesus. I was commissioned by Jesus to, to feed the lambs. I have written part of the New Testament, and what I speak is true. So he says, I'm an apostle, and he says, to the elect exiles throughout Asia Minor. But really, it's talking about the church at large. It could be to the elect exiles, the exiles in Phoenix, Arizona, or Jakarta, Indonesia, or Buenos Aires, Argentina. It's just to the church abroad. See, we are here, if you're a believer in Christ, you are an elect exile. This world is not your home, ultimately. Your authority is not primarily the law of the land. That is your authority, unless it's in loggerheads with the law of God. Uh, you march to a different drummer. You're planted, you're rooted, instead of being driven by the spirit of the age. You are an elect exile. You're a pilgrim. This is, this is who you are. Um, and and if, if we live as, as elect exiles, I believe this as we go through this book, if we live with a mind that says, I'm an elect exile, it will lead to hope, courage, perspective, and joy in my life. So, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes about the importance of government. And he says to the Greco-Roman world now, this is under the Greco-Roman world, he says, he says that the government is instituted by God and given by God. 
And that the government usually doesn't hold any fear for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. And then he gives this encapsulation statement in verse 17 of 1 Peter 2. So he says, in light of that, honor everyone, love your brothers and your sisters, fear God, and honor the emperor. It's an incredible statement when you really take it apart. So he says, honor everyone. Because everyone's made in the image of God, and everyone is worthy of respect and Christian love. So, so we honor people. There's no class system. He says, so honor everyone. Love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Fear God and honor the emperor. He uses the same word, honor everyone, honor the emperor. In other words, give the emperor his due. He's God-appointed leader. But the emperor is not divine, as he says he is. The emperor is not God's mouthpiece, as he says he is. He he's, he's, he's the emperor. You honor everyone, you honor the emperor. So, so, so that's just, he says, but remember, you do that as you are elect exiles. So, I've been talking about a definition of a disciple. Let me give it to you again. A disciple is a forgiven sinner who is constantly learning Jesus in repentance and faith. So you start with the cross, the glory of the cross, a disciple, a forgiven sinner. You start there. Who is constantly learning Jesus. Until we die as a disciple, we go further into the light, further into the life of Christ, further into understanding. We, we take a step, we're, we're going forward. We're continuously being changed. Who is constantly learning Jesus in Repentance, which means life adjustments, and faith looking to Christ. So, so, so in, in this little introduction, he, he says several things that we're just going to hit on and come back later. He, he says, you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We're about that next week, but God eternally loved us, drew us unto himself in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, sanctification is a process of going into the light. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is being made holy in heart and conduct. But in this particular instance, I think he's referring to the beginning step of, of this growth, which is you're being born anew by the power of God through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked in your heart. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. We believe you're saved by faith alone through the work of Jesus alone for your sins on the cross. And, and so we plead with you to understand that, that Christ died on the cross for your sins. And outside of that, there's, there's judgment. Inside of that, there's life and peace and hope. And then he says this, for obedience to Jesus Christ. We're saved to be joyfully obedient to him. And the continuous sprinkling of his blood. We always go to him for forgiveness. We always run to him. And so I look at this and I say, you know, as I thought about this book, what are some key decision points where Peter had a fork in the road, but he chose to go the way of the Lord? We are all the accumulation of a mosaic of decision after decision after decision after decision. But in, in your life, in our lives, there, there are key moments where you come to a, a major fork in the road and you choose to go the Lord's way, which leads to hope, or you go this way, which leads to, I think, 
eventual sorrow. See, transformative learning is the process by which we grow into understanding the life of Christ. And I believe that transformative learning under Christ will, oftentimes is very difficult. You're going uphill, you're pushing into the wind. It can be difficult, it can be discouraging, but it always leads to human flourishing and our joy. I believe that. The Lord's way is good. So there are forks in the road. And I'm just going to look at three episodes in the life of Peter that helped make him the man he was as he wrote Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says later, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, how did he get there? Three episodes. I could do many more, but for time, three. These are three stories that if you've been a believer very long, been going to church, you've probably heard many, sometimes countless times. But, 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 but the first is this. He comes to a fork in the road, and he has this decision to make. Do I believe that Jesus is the eternal God who's the source of all wisdom? Or do I believe he's a well-meaning teacher? That's, that's easy. Yeah. Do, do I believe that Jesus is eternal wisdom? He's, the Bible says he spoke the world into being. That's amazing. Or do I believe he is a, a well-meaning, peripatetic teacher that may or may not know what's going on? So here's, here's the background. Jesus has, we're in Luke chapter 5, and Jesus has been speaking in a boat. And we'll pick it up in verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but at your word. I will let down the nets. Now, this is early in the ministry of Jesus. Peter hasn't been around him all that long. Peter is a fisherman. He's got a callus on top of callus weather-beaten face. He's been doing this for a long time. And here he is with his friends. They've been fishing all night, no catch. And a carpenter, who's a teacher, says, let down your nets. Now, Peter is trying to be kind to this teacher. But in reality, if you are a master craftsman in woodwork and somebody who puts in tile porches and backsplashes comes to you and tells you how to do your master craftsman as a woodworking artist, that isn't well received. Just be bluntly honest. If you're a physician and you're working with an attorney and the attorney tells you how to do surgery, that's not well received. I mean, that's putting it mildly. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. So here is a carpenter telling a fisherman in front of the local fisherman's guild to go fishing again when they've worked all night. And it's not, they had to lay down these huge nets that was a laborious process. And so Peter says with a very, I think a loud voice, so everyone can hear him, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything, but because I respect you, I'll let down the nets one more time. It's a disclaimer. Scripture says this, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, for they were all astonished 
at the catch of fish that they had taken in. So let down the nets. The fish jump in. The nets begin to tear. They're so heavy they call in another boat. As the fish are being dumped into the keel of the boat, Peter falls on his face before this teacher, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter realized that something was up. This is not normal. And so that's why I say you, you come to the point where in, in this crisis, you see, see, either he's eternal God who's the source of all wisdom, and, and he's given me his word, or he's a well-meaning teacher who could be right and could be wrong. And we face that all the time. And I think as elect exiles, we're going to face that potentially with increasing frequency. I'll give you, I'll give you a thousand examples. Let me give you two. So I'm watching movies and TV shows today, and this has happened more and more and more as I watch these shows. And a, a, a young man and a young woman start hanging out. They start dating. And then after a certain period of time in their relationship, he looks at her or she looks at him, and they say, I need to ask you a, a really tough question that I really want to ask you. Is it time for us to move in together? And the woman goes, you've asked me to move in with you. Well, he's not an idiot. That's not beside the point. And, and, and you go, Wow. And they have a party. We're moving in together. We want to tell you, we're moving in together. Let me tell you, 30 years ago, that wasn't even on the, wasn't even a blip on the radar. And now it's just ubiquitous. It's just everywhere. Listen, if you're elect exiles, if, you're, if you belong to Jesus, you read the Bible, and the Bible says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. I mean, the whole culture's going that way. I mean, it's a huge, it's a, it's a tsunami. You're going out to lunch. You work in an office with some other young people. You're progressive. You're bright. And you're, you're having nachos. And somebody says, hey, you've been dating, what's her name, for eight months. How's it going? He says, well, we're, I think we're getting serious. I mean, I really like her. And somebody says, hey, when are you guys going to move in together? And you go, well, you're an elect exile. You yeah. say, well, we're, we're, we're not. Why? Well, to be honest with you, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And, and the Bible says that, that intimacy is for marriage. And so when you're married, you have intimacy. So we, we're not going to do that. And here's the response. I'll give you three choices. You make your choice. What they do. Response A, thank you for standing up for biblical purity in a culture that's desolate. I don't think so. I don't think so. B, Change the subject very quickly because it's embarrassing. You go, cannot wait for the kickoff in three weeks. This is the year for my bears. Finally, after being in the, in the pits for years, we're going to make a run in the NFC Central Division. Or C, stony silence. B or C. Not more than likely B or C. And so you get back from eating nachos. And an hour later, three or four of these guys are around the water cooler. And they go, one of them kind of says, can you believe that guy? Can you believe him? I mean, where did he come from? See, Peter says that's what's going to happen. Listen to 1 Peter 4.4. 4. It says, with respect to this, the party lifestyle, they are surprised when you not, do not join them in the same flood of debauchery 
and they malign you. They make fun of you. They marginalize you. Listen, elect exiles, that's going to happen. I thought about, as just on, just the Bible is incredibly panoramic and honest and clear. And, and you know, there, all the confessions of faith say there, there are three reasons to get married. One is for companionship. And marriage is a rich source of companionship most of the time. Yeah, it is. Two is to, is to have children. If you are married and you're physically able and you said, yeah, I don't think we're going to have children. I just, the world's so screwed up, I can't, you know, don't, don't go there. Don't. The Bible says be fruitful and multiply. You should have children. You should. And you should train them in the way of the Lord. So you have a homework assignment this week, okay? The third reason for getting married, the Bible says, is it's better to marry, 1 Corinthians 7, than to burn with passion. But if you're living together, you're not burning with passion. You're satisfying that desire. So, so one, one reason you get married is because you have passions. And if you're a young person sitting here with your parents, I, met, I saw a lot of kids recently who have just this past hour are going to college next week. You're sitting with your parents, and you're thinking in your, in your mind, are you telling me, Pastor Brown, that one reason my mom and dad got married is because they were burning with passion? Yes. Yes. I'm going to go step further. Think about your old grandmom and granddad. Wrinkled, stooped, back hurts, bald. There was a time when they burned with passion and they had to get married. Now I've just given you something to talk about at Sunday lunch, okay? All right. Anyway. So you're in elect Texas, it's different. I was reading Mark 19 this week. It's, just, it's, very, it's really funny. Jesus is talking to his disciples, these men he's been walking with and training and praying over and staying up all night praying for. And they start talking about marriage. And they lived in a culture where to divorce your wife, I had to do is stand up in public and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. It's done. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way you live. He says the, the only ground for divorce is physical unfaithfulness. Paul says, or desertion. So physical unfaithfulness. And, and the, the disciples, these men he's trained and loved and cared for, are astounded. They said, you've got to be kidding me. Then they said this brilliant statement. If that's the truth, it's better not to get married. Because what if, basically, what if you marry somebody that's not fun to be with? How's that for a spiritual response? And Jesus is saying, no, you're an elect exile. So we, we have this church, we have this crisis moment where we go the Lord's way of wisdom or, or, or we don't. See, the book of Proverbs, I try to read the proverb that corresponds with the day of the month. So today's Proverbs 11. But the book of Proverbs is about wisdom crying out to men and women become wise. Wisdom is the personification of the mind of God. So in, there's three types of people in Proverbs. There is the wise person who, who through listening and who through life application makes good decisions. There is the fool who makes bad decisions and goes from bad to worse. And then there's somebody in the middle called the simple who are in process of becoming wise or a fool. 
And so in Proverbs chapter 8, the, the, the writer of Proverbs says this about calling out. He says, I, verse 1, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud to you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man, O simple ones, learn prudence or life application. Simple ones. Verse 11. For for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. He says, learn. A simple person is somebody who's in the process of becoming wise or a fool, and they're caught here and they need daily wisdom. That is me. And it says here, Listen, he says, getting this type of wisdom is better than jewels and diamonds and, and, and a stock portfolio that's through the roof because it gives you a future and a hope. So, so I plead with you. Jesus is all wisdom. I got to speak to the PCA teachers at our school this week, and we were just talking about the importance of giving children a foundation where they can stand Talked about Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on the law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted, planted, not so the wicked. They're like tumbleweed that just blows here and there, chaff. I said, you know, I know tons of people that are much smarter than I will ever be, but they're not planted. So, so, so the, the, their decision-making is, well, I don't know, well, maybe, well, no. And you, you pick this book up and you go, well, boom, you're planted. Boom. Get planted. Peter was the man he was because in a crisis moment he said, you are God always. Secondly, Peter became the man he was because he looked at Christ instead of the waves. And you know this story very well. It's in Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse oh, uh, 22 or so. Listen. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. For the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which is 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him, Walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And and Peter, God bless Peter. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out and took him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this is further down Peter's experience. He sees that Jesus' wisdom incarnate still hadn't got it all together in his mind, but he knows that he's God. And, and so, out of all the disciples, Peter says, Lord, let me come to you. And so he jumps out and he looks at Peter, and all of a sudden, maybe a wave hits him. He's in white caps, white caps. I mean, boom. And as he takes his eyes off of Christ, Peter begins to sink, and he says, Lord, save me. I, I, I read this, and I go, here, here's the issue. The issue is, am, am I going to be the one, am, am I in, in the crisis of life, and we, we all have them, am I going to primarily look at Jesus or primarily look at the white caps? See, look at Jesus. The, 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 the problems are still there. Or do I look at the white caps, and the white caps become mountains? See, if I'm... If I'm focused on that as compared to focused on, on Jesus, it's, we, we do it every week, sometimes with, with greater severity than others. I, absolutely. I'm, I'm talking to a, a man this week who's just a dear person, and he's going through a horrendous time with a child. Terrible. And, and so I, I said to him, I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry. Stop side road, when you're with someone who has lost a loved one, especially a child or a spouse, or they're going through an incredibly earth-shattering time, do not say to them some spiritual platitude. Do not say to them, I know how you feel, because you do not know how they feel. But what you say, just say to them, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Man, I'm praying for you. So I, I said to this person, I said, you know, I, I'm sorry. And he says, this is hard. He says, but I know that in one way or another, the Lord will have his way. I thought it was a holy moment for me. One way or another, he says, I, you know, this is going to turn out this way. I know it because I have faith. And He says, you know, I, God is God. And right now in, in, in this experience, I need to look at Jesus and not at the white caps. You can look at the white caps, and then you go down. You look at Jesus. The white caps are still there, guys. But it gives you perspective. So that's why Peter could write to this church, this these group of churches that, that are going into persecution. He says, you know, when you go into these times of, of, of white caps and winds and waves, listen to these verses. First uh, Peter 2, 20, B says, 23, if, if, if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When they reviled him, 
He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entered into the pain, and he entrusted himself to the living God. So when the white caps hit, and the white caps will hit, some of you are in white caps right now. It is tough. It's hard. The white caps are still there, but look to Jesus. Not the circumstances. Or, or he could write in chapter 4 this statement. It's just mind-boggling. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You're an elect exile. This is going to happen. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen to verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. I don't fully understand that, but what he's saying is that if you are insulted because of Jesus and you endure it and you go to it, through it with a sense of trust, the Holy Spirit energizes you in fresh anointings you've never had before. And this book sings. So, the third crisis moment is, will I repent and run to the cross? Or will I deny and withdraw in shame? And this, of course, is the famous encounter in Luke 22 where Jesus is denied by Peter you know the story, Christ is going to be betrayed, and he says, all of you men, my closest men here, will desert me. And Peter says, these guys might, but not me. Not me. And Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And then he says, before the Rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter says, never, never. And we pick it up in Luke 22, verse 54. They seized Jesus and led him away. Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, just a servant girl, not an armed soldier threatening death. A servant girl, a servant girl. Seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Jesus says, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, so he had an hour to, to ruminate on this. Three times, twice, I think I get prepared. An hour later, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is too as a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. One gospel says he said with curses. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and he wept bitterly. 
So here's the crossroad. Peter has blown it. Either he can weep bitterly in repentance over his brokenness, or he can withdraw in disgust and shame. He could, he could have said something like this. Well, I, I, I stood up for you. When they arrested you, I took my sword out and I swung it at the high priest's ear. I meant to get his jugular, but I hit his ear. I'm not a great swordsman, but I stood up. You healed the ear and you rebuked me. I, I tried to do the right thing. You're always turning the tables on me. He could have withdrawn in shame and guilt and frustration. Or he could have repented and he repented. He went out and he wept bitterly. Listen, brothers and sisters, dear, dear brothers and sisters, it is good to weep bitterly over our sin. Have you wept bitterly lately? I mean, maybe not physically, but in your heart. Have you just, have you, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 5, have you groaned inwardly saying, oh no, this broken relationship or this attitude or this anger or whatever, God, bring your healing to me. It is good to weep bitterly. That's called repentance. We have a ministry here called Man to Man. It starts in a few weeks for guys on Friday morning and have a nice size group, about 200 or so. Rumor has it that there are three or four guys there who occasionally have marital problems. I haven't found them out yet, but I've heard they're there. We all have problems, okay? And I say to the guys occasionally, when you are short-tempered with your wife or your kids, when you feel like they don't appreciate you as they should, when you are peevish and uncaring instead of sacrificially loving, go into your inner room, close the door, and get on your face and say, God, thank you for showing me I am undone without Jesus. And weep bitterly. It is good to weep bitterly. And that's why Peter is, in part, the man he is. See, not only that, this is, this is a really good stuff. My time is gone. This is the really good stuff. So, Peter's since spends three days in probably in the fetal position, thinking, I can't believe a servant girl. No, I would have thought, really, a servant girl? What an idiot. And yet, they, they, they didn't get it. But, but some women come charging into the room on, on that first Easter Sunday, and they say, The tomb's empty. It's, it's, it's empty. The stone's been rolled back. A gardener, somebody told us. And, and it says that Peter and another guy got up and ran to the tomb. The other guy was younger, we think. So he, he beat Peter to the tomb because Peter's a little bit old. And the, 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 the friend stands outside the tomb. Peter goes into the tomb, looks around, sees the gra- grave cloths. What's going on? See, Peter, filled with shame and remorse, Ran to the tomb because he knew in the heart of Jesus there was always acceptance. So good, so good. And then John 21. <laughs> the disciples are in a boat. They're fishing. Jesus is resurrected. They get close to the shore and they see a figure. They can't make him out. 
they, they see a figure and, and they, they smell fish being charcoaled. And one of the disciples, as they get a little closer, says, younger guy, better vision. It's, 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 it's Jesus, it's the Lord. And, and, and Peter, instead of waiting for the boat to come up on the sandbar or waiting for the boat to dock, says he took a robe, his robe, and he wrapped it around him and he jumped in and he swam 100 yards. I've always wanted, I want to ask Peter in heaven, why did you put a robe around you? Because that weighed you down. That wasn't real smart, Peter, but he said, so I do those things. That's what I do. I'm not real smart sometimes. But he swims in because he can't wait to be in Jesus' presence because he knows there's a large-hearted acceptance in the life of Jesus for those who repent. And that's where he has his famous dialogue with Jesus. Peter, do you love me more than these? Ask him three times. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. So, so you see, repentance, weeping bitterly over our brokenness, our sin, our shorts, brings us into the presence of the one who receives us. Do not go the way of being sullen and withdrawn and blame-shifting, but go the way of, 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 of repentance. He's writing this letter to elect exiles, plural, all over Asia Minor. He talks about the importance of the church. First Peter 5 talks about the importance of office holders in the church. The Bible says we're to live out the reality of Christ in community. So I, I would just plead with you as the year starts, school starts, new church year starts, be lovingly, hungrily involved in a local body of believers so you can build relationships and walk with people and hear the word and sit under the word and be planted and where your kids and your grandkids can be planted or your friends and your co-workers can be planted. And if it's this church, we have a new members class on Saturday. We have a luncheon right now. Free food. Get to meet some of the leaders of the church. But get involved in a local church. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. We are indeed elect exiles. So let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for the life of Peter. We thank you that at these crisis moments, we see the frailty of this man. We see a, 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 a dear man who doesn't get it, but who wants to get it. But we see a man whose heart is really captivated by the goodness of Jesus eventually. So Thank you for that, and as we study this book and we try to understand what it means to be chosen people who are exiles, who march to the drumbeat of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, I pray you change us. I pray you change us, and that you'd work in us, and that you would show us the goodness of Christ. We pray especially as just had the opportunity to see so many students who are coming back or so many of our students who are going out, many for the first time. Lord, guide them and guard them and surround them and teach them during these formative years what it means to be a disciple of Jesus who is a forgiven sinner, constantly learning what it means to walk with Christ in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.